God's doing. Take your Bibles and let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 this morning. And uh, we're going to begin in verse number 15 of this chapter. Acts 17, 15. The last several weeks we've been in Acts 16 and we've seen the, uh, the story of the Apostle Paul coming to Macedonia, ending up in Philippi, preaching the gospel there, ending up in jail. And last week, Pastor Caleb walked us through the account of the Philippian jailer coming to faith in Christ, his family becoming uh, believers, his household being saved. And we see that when you walk through hard times, that God still gives us a song in our midnight. And, and here's the thing to remember, church, is that though we are making a commitment today, and we may be on the mountaintop of thinking, hey, let's commit to give to world missions. Let's commit to be a witness to our neighbors and our community around us. The fact is, uh, we are called to witness whether it's fair skies or it's storming outside. And there are going to come days when there are storms that will blow, and yet we're still called to be a gospel witness. And Pastor Caleb walked us through that. As we walk into chapter 17, Paul has traveled through several cities and over 400 miles to reach the city of Athens. And there he's at Athens, and he's going to preach uh, the Mars Hill message. And uh, you read this message, and we will not by any means be able to unpack all the implications of this in the next 20 to 25 minutes. But Paul preaches a masterful message here, and, and I think what we have written in our text this morning is only the cliff notes to the message. Uh, we don't have the whole uh, text to his sermon, uh, but he gives us the basic arguments that he lays out in front of these people. And Paul is going to a very pagan culture and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in this pagan culture. And so if you found your place in uh, Acts 17, we're going to begin reading in verse number 15, and I want you to read with me. Uh, down through the end of this chapter, and I know that's a large section of reading, and we'll comment a little bit as we go here as we walk through this text. And so follow with me, if you would, as I read aloud. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, I'm sorry, I'm, I started in 16, not 15, Get back up to 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue and the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I love that line, those who happened to be there. And God was orchestrating an audience for Paul, and it's just those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Notice the content of Paul's message here. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, of what these things mean. Now all the Athenians uh, and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing some new thing. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom were also Dionysus and the Aragopite and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we're going to ask you to add your blessing to the reading of your word right now. Father, we ask you that you would do a work in our midst. Father, open our eyes and our ears. Lord, as we turn to the text of Scripture this morning, that, Father, you would be magnified in what is said and done. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought now as we walk through this text today. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Paul has traveled now to Philippi, 400-mile journey. He's gone through Thessalonica, and that's where we get the book to the Thessalonians. He's gone through Berea, those who were more noble than others and that they searched the Scripture. And now he arrives at Athens. If you notice when we read earlier in verse number 15 how they had brought him to Athens and left him there, and he was waiting for the rest of his team, Silas and Timothy, to catch up. And Paul is waiting at Athens. And what I want to do is just break this through. First thing we see about Paul is that he sees a work remaining to be done no matter where his location is. There's always a work to be done. And, and here's the thing I would like for us as believers to get in our heart and mind is let's not wait until we get into certain geographic settings before we think of ourselves as on mission. But understand that when you are in this auditorium on a Sunday morning, you are on gospel mission. And the fact is, and the sad reality is, is there may be people here that have been in church for many, many years who still not, do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and have never been born again, and you have a gospel witness that should be happening inside the church service. Let me say this, you're on a gospel witness inside your home. You're on a gospel witness at your workplace and at the restaurant this afternoon and wherever you find yourself, don't have the mentality of like, well, we're going to go on a missions trip in a few months and then I'm going to really be about evangelism. No, we're about evangelism. We're about gospel witness everywhere we are in every setting and there's always a work to be done. Everywhere you go, when you go to the dry cleaners, when you go to the barber, when you're at the grocery store, we're on gospel mission. And this is Paul's heart. Now, what we first see Paul having is time to kill. In verse number 15, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. So his team hasn't arrived yet. And he's waiting on his team to show up. And when they get here, man, we're really going to get started. And, I, you know, and I, I picture Paul thinking that's the plan, right? 
These guys are coming when they get here, and yet Paul goes down to buy some food, and he's looking around and seeing all the idols, and I picture Paul as being this very guy full of energy, you know, just like we got to do something, we got to do it now. I kind of picture him as kind of, you know, shoot first, aim later um, kind of guy, and I think Paul walks into the city, he sees all the gods, he sees all the, and he's, he's like, you know what, enough of this. When these guys get here, they can catch up. I'm going to start preaching now. And he's like, I'm going to go find the synagogue and I'm going to start preaching there. And Paul goes in the synagogue and begins. And he has time to kill and yet he doesn't just waste the time. I put in my notes here, it's a good thing Paul didn't have a smartphone. And I wonder how much time we do waste when we have time to kill, when we could be being a gospel witness. How much time we set aside to too many other things when our hearts and minds could be focused on connecting to those around us. And again, as I admonished us yesterday, one of the, the, the first thing we should do when our hearts begin to be burdened about the lost souls in our community is we ought to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers. And as we pray, God puts a Christ-centered, gospel-focused drive inside of our hearts to be missionaries for His glory. And we go with a boldness as we pray for that. And you say, well, Pastor, I just don't feel like going. Then pray that God would change your heart. Pray that God would send laborers into the harvest. And so here Paul is going with this mission. He goes in and his seeing eye and a stirred spirit. Lamentations 3.51, he says this, Mine eye hath affected my heart. As the prophet is writing these words, he's talking about the grief of the city and the judgment of God. And he said his heart was moved and he wept over what he saw. And I think when we go into a community, what is the effect of our hearts when we see the needs of a community around us? And let me make something very clear this morning. The needs of the world is not better living conditions. The needs of the world are not nicer houses and running water. Because if that was the only gospel mission that was available to us, then Shelby Township doesn't need a church. Because we live in nice houses. We have all the modern conveniences. We're blessed with much comfort. But the fact is, a man with six-figure income needs the gospel of Jesus Christ just like a man who's living on one peso a day. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the need of the world around us. And, and I'd say this, we have a greater and a harder field to plow because the Bible tells us Jesus from his own lips says it is hard for a rich man to enter into heaven because a rich man doesn't see his need of the gospel. And we see, we see gospel and church as a part of our life, not the center of our life. And they think, well, I have some religiosity. I have some religion, so I'm good. Paul's going to address that in a minute. So Paul goes in. He sees this community. Let me say we go to sow, we weep, that we might reap. We see not only what I see is time to kill and a seeing eye and a moved heart, but we see the city and its condition. I think the wording in the King James on this is wholly given to idolatry. The city was wholly given over to it. It was so corrupt with idolatry that everywhere they looked, there was another idol, another stone, another uh, silver or gold or bronze uh, statue somewhere to another god, another temple or location erected to the worship of these gods. And all the worship that was given to these gods was debauchery and evil that these men were pouring into it. 
They said there was over 3,000 in Athens, 3,000 public idols. These were the idols that were on public display that more than one person was worshiping at. 3,000 public idols, and yet each home held many non-public idols that they privately worshiped. One Roman poet wrote this, and G.S. Davis gives us this insight in his commentary on this. He said, it is easier in Athens to find a god than to find a man. There were gods everywhere. Everybody had a god, and there was multiple gods that they were worshiping. The whole city is given over to uh, this idolatry. Now, we can look at our society today and say, well, man, we see, we see idolatry in our society, do we not? I mean, look at the addictions and the perversions that we see in society. And these men, no doubt, were involved in this. And we'll see the two sects here that one was saying the, the idolatry they had was an idolatry that supported self-control. And they had another idolatry that support, supported self-indulgence. And they thought one was better than the other. And they were pursuing these idols nonetheless. One was pursuing a moral high ground. The other was pursuing indulgence. And they still had their idols they were worshiping. They were sacrificing to false gods. People with little to no resources would bring all that they could scrape together, even to take uh, from their basic needs and turn them over to one of these local gods in hopes that God would, that God would bless them. And if you think I'm talking about Athens, I'm not. I'm talking about the United States of America. Because what we do is we have the gods that we take what we have and what we can't afford to give and we turn it over to the god of materialism whose high priest is the state lottery and we think maybe this god will bless me and make me wealthy. And we do that all across this nation. We take advantage of people with our materialism and our worship of materialism and that god is rampant. It's, it's rampant in our society today and it's very easy to look back and say, man, they had a lot of gods there. The fact is, Idolatry has not died. Idolatry is alive and well in America today. It's alive and well in, in all the countries that have been mentioned this morning. All of the countries that we support missionaries to, idolatry is alive and well. And what are they looking from idolatry? They're looking to seek protection or provision to give them worship. What city is this? This Athens city is the city of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. The philosophers. Let me say this morning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I love Paul, he's not intimidated by that in the least. He's like, you know, Plato, what you got? Bring it. Paul says, I'm going to go down where you live and I'm going to preach Jesus to him. Paul goes right into the heart of all this. The message of the gospel takes no back seat to man's worldly wisdom. And by the way, neither should you and I be intimidated by this world's wisdom, but boldly proclaim Jesus. See, it was not art that stirred Paul's heart. Paul didn't look around Athens and think, man, what beautiful statues and what beautiful architect. And man, I'm so moved by this architect. No, it was the paganism of the culture, the lack of worship of the one true God. It was not the people of the culture, but the people of idolatry that had stirred his heart to do something. I would ask us this morning, what catches our eye about this world and the people of this world? Are we infatuated with the people of this world? When we look at the, the famous people of the world, I think one of the mistakes the church has made far too many times in the Western culture is thinking if we can find somebody famous who knows Jesus, that'll make the gospel more appealing to the world. It doesn't work that way. 
And too often what it does is it dilutes the message of the gospel. What moves us when we see the world and its condition? What catches our eye? Are we enamored with it? You know, maybe, maybe you're on the side this morning where you say, I'm just angry at the world. I, I can get that. I can look around at the world today and I can see the confusion that we see and the nonsense that goes on in the name of inclusivity, in the name of autonomy. And I look at it and I'm thinking, we have lost our ever-loving mind. What are we doing? When, when we cannot tell between the difference between a man and a woman, and we won't say what the difference is in public, because we're afraid of being canceled. And what grieves me is not only is it the secular world following that idol, but the church is right behind it. And we're not willing to say what it is. And, and we can look at the world and be angry with the confusion of the world. But let me say this. That's not a gospel-centered response either. Our hearts should be grieved over the condition of the world, broken by their condition. But we should stand up in that brokenness and say, here's the truth. The lamb who was slain is worthy of the reward of his suffering. Let's go and preach the gospel to those who are broken this morning. Because if all we do is turn up our nose at those who are morally inferior to us, we've not done anything but join the Stoics in their worship. We're not making much of Jesus. And here we see this world that is broken. Idolatry is all around Paul and his heart is broken by the hopelessness of their situation. And no doubt, when we look at the world and their attempts to solve the brokenness that they see. The problem is not that the world is not trying to fix things. The problem is they don't have enough information and they don't have the right starting point. You see, man's wisdom, if you read Corinthians, when Paul is writing in the first few chapters of Corinthians, he, he's saying this, that it's man's wisdom, man's knowledge, and he talks about this world, and he uses two words for world. He uses cosmos, and he uses the idea of age. The problem with man's wisdom is it's limited by time that you live in and by the material world that you live in. So you can't see more than the world you're in and the time that you live in. Have you ever heard say something like, you're a product of your time? You're a product of your time. And if all we have is man's wisdom, then we're limited by the time that we live in and the material world that we can see, and that's all the wisdom we can have. It would be great if we had someone who was outside of time and space and matter, who knew the beginning from the end and could give us some wisdom about how to solve man's situation, and then it would be wonderful if he would write it in a book somewhere. And he has this morning, and that is the message that we take to a lost world. We must be careful this morning that we do not ignore the idols that dwell in the world, but not ignore the idols that dwell in our own hearts. John Calvin, in his commentary, he said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his mother's womb, experts in inventing idols. We're good at it. We make idols and we give them religious-sounding names. We worship money and we call it security. We worship pleasure and we call it downtime. We worship comfort, we call it necessity. We worship autonomy in our nation. 
We worship sports, we worship education, we worship all of these things, and we think somehow or another these things will give us what we want. And let me make something very clear. Christians are not exempt from setting these idols up in their own heart. That we have to go in with the message of the gospel and preach it to ourselves that the fact is, is that your pleasures are not going to give you what you need. They're not the solution. They are often the thing that lulls us to sleep in our mission. You think autonomy and the all-powerful individual is not alive in the well in the church, then we're, we're not seeing the church in its broad thing. What we want is a church that is tailored to us. Meet at the time that's come before me, sing the music that I want to hear, have the programs that I want, and don't change it. And what we like to have is a church that fits me exactly all the time every day. And I've said to you before, if you can come to church here for six months and not be bothered by something that is preached or sung, you're probably in the wrong place. You need to take a vote and fire me. Because there ought to be something that stirs us in our soul when, when, when the word of God is proclaimed to the people of God that we're not coming just to be comforted and be lulled to sleep and be made to feel okay, but we're being challenged by the word of God and we're saying, hey, look, it's not about the all-powerful I. But we as individuals have come to be a part of the body of Christ. Tim Keller said a counterfeit God or an idol in his book, Counterfeit God, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything that seeks to give you what only God can give you. Anything that you seek after to give you what only God can give you becomes an idol in your life. I would challenge us this morning to check our own hearts on what idol rests there. We see the people of Athens. Paul saw them given over to idols, and he gives us a couple of names here. So Paul's pattern, as often as it is, he goes to the synagogue and begins to teach there, and there are some uh, higher-ranking officials that would come around there, and what, he, what they call here in this text, uh, he reasoned the synagogue with devout persons, and then in the marketplace every day with whoever happened to be there. He was just preaching to whoever was in front of him. And we said a few weeks ago that we're not trying to find a demographic-focused ministry, but we're preaching to the next person that God brings across our path. That we're trying to reach the next person that God would open the door to us. But they were hearing what Paul was saying, and as he was preaching in the marketplace, they come to him, and they call Paul and say, Hey, look, won't you come up to the Areopagus? And the word means simply the court or the place of discussion. And why don't you tell us this new thing you're teaching everybody? The people that approached Paul were the Epicureans. The Epicureans were people who worshiped many gods who were uninvolved. Their focus and their way of accomplishing the worship of their gods was the pursuit of pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. This is the creed of the Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, were another group of people, and these were pantheists as well, that God is in all things, and all life is in God, and the world was ruled by fate, not providence. That God too, they even believed that the gods were ruled by fate. The gods were subordinate to fate. They had the mission of abstaining and will control that was going to solve their problems. That if they could discipline themselves, they would solve this. And these men would dispute and go back and forth. And I love this. The Bible says that Paul disputed with them. It doesn't seem to be very... Um, 
evangelical approach, does it? That he argued with them. And it doesn't necessarily mean that Paul was rude, but it does mean that he asserted claims that disagreed with theirs. Paul was asserting claims that took on head-to-head what these men were asserting, and he proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the only way. We heard that this morning in the testimony, that there was no other God, and this is what Paul was doing. It means to say thoroughly in argument, to dispute, to preach, to reason with. And Paul goes in and begins to proclaim this with the Jews, the devout persons, those he encountered. And he does so boldly. What do we see about this preacher? Well, they call him and they say, hey, why don't you come? Look how they describe him here in verse number 18. Some of the Epicureans and Stoics and philosophers also converse with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? They called him a babbler. This guy babbling on. Like, yeah, we know how, how they felt. You pastor could wrap it up, right? You know, he's just babbling on. Here he goes again. What's he talking about? The picture of the babbler is the bird picking up seeds here and there and, and scattering them about. And an unlearned man putting on a show as if he knows more than he knows. Who is this babbler? And they said he's a preacher of foreign divinities or of strange gods. But in their mind, what Paul was preaching was a God who was one of many. That it was one of many gods that was coming. I love this. He said, can you come and tell us what this new teaching is? I kind of picture Paul saying, and it's interesting where Paul starts right here. Come tell us what this new teaching is. And Paul says, okay, before time began, God. He said, you want to hear a new teaching? I don't have a new teaching to give you, but I can tell you the old, old story. I can tell you the story that before time began, God spoke it all into existence and God did this work and he created everything that you know. The God who made the worlds. And so the message is clear. Paul has been the whole time preaching the resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection. He starts at the beginning. He addresses sin and judgment and he proclaims the hope through the resurrection of, of, of Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't pull any punches. And it's the same message that Peter preached all the way at the beginning of Acts when he was preaching to those men that Jesus Christ is the hope of the resurrection. The only difference is Paul started where these men were not at. He said, here's the thing I want you to see. This God, who is the unknown God, created everything. And he gave them the beginning. And by the way, we are living in more and more of an Athenian society today than we are in a Jerusalem society. When Peter had preached in Jerusalem, that these were Jewish men and women that were hearing him preach, and they knew some basics of Scripture. They knew of a creation, they knew of a coming Messiah, and they believed in these things. Peter took what they knew and connected it to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what we see is a masterful argument of showing that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That was Peter's sermon. Now when Paul gets to Athens... He doesn't start with, now you know the Messiah is coming, right? Because these men would have had no idea what he's talking about. And he said, let me talk about the unknown God, the one you know nothing about, but this God is knowable. And he said, let me tell you about the God who created you and created everything that is. He created it all. And here's the thing, if Satan and his demons, if God, if everything that God created ceased to exist, Satan and his demons would cease to exist. God created it all. And he starts at the beginning, and he begins to show them who God is, 
who man is, what man's condition is, and what God's answer to man's condition is. And he preached the gospel boldly. Now, I think the response to the gospel is often the thing that makes us most afraid. Pastor, if I witness to that person, if I invite them to church, if I invite them to a gr- small group, if I invite them to a Bible study, if I, if I begin to talk about Jesus to you, they're going to mock me. They're going to make fun of me. They won't listen anyway. And here's the reality. You're right. You're right. And that's exactly what we see happen in this text. You see, our job this morning is not to guess at who's going to respond or how they're going to respond, but our job is to preach the gospel to men as they are and let God do the work in their heart that only God can do. And so we go with the gospel. God gives the increase in his time. Do not let the jeering of the mockers, the questions of the doubters, stop you from preaching the gospel to those who would believe. And we go boldly preaching. Look at what happened in verse 32 of our text. As we come down to the end of this chapter, we see them having, Paul does just, and I told you we couldn't unpack this whole sermon, but it is a powerful sermon that Paul has preached. But verse 32, now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. This guy's crazy. People don't die and rise again. What are you talking about? Man, this guy's lost his, he's off his nut. Let's go somewhere else. We don't want to hear him anymore. They mocked. Some said, we'll hear you again. Some said, let me think about that. Let me just say this this morning. Just because you witnessed to your neighbor and they haven't responded yet doesn't mean God's done with them. There's still a work to be done. You're still a light in a dark place. Continue to witness. Continue to pray and ask God to open doors. Ask God to soften hearts. Some said, we'll hear you again, but I'm glad in verse number 34, but some men joined him and believed. Some believed. And friend, as we go with the gospel, some will mock, some will wait, and some will believe. And it's not our job to figure out who's going to do what. It's our job to proclaim it. You see, this morning, this is his plan, not ours. Don't, don't get in your mind somehow or another that, you know, several thousand years ago, somewhere the church got together and said, hey, what are we going to do about getting more people inside the doors? Oh, I got an idea. Let's invent this Great Commission thing, and we'll go preach Jesus to people. No, understand, the Great Commission preceded the launching of the church. That it was God calling a group of men together and saying, you'll be endued with power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And from that proclaiming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God saved men and women and joined them together in the body of Christ. This is his plan, not ours. It's through his power, not ours. I, I, I take great courage in that, friend. That it is not something you and I have to find the power to do, but we've been given the power by God's Spirit to do. And if God is called, God enables, and He's called every one of us to be a witness of the gospel here and around the world. And we can witness to our neighbors by our testimony this afternoon, and we can send the gospel around the world by giving to missionaries as they go with the gospel, and that power is not accomplished in our own person. It's through Him that's accomplished. This morning, as we've already heard in the testimony, this is our calling. Pastor, I'd like to know what God's will for my life is. 
I can tell you for sure that God's will for your life is for you to be a witness of the gospel to the people around you. I don't have to look any further in scripture. You don't have to even pray anymore about it. We can know from the page of scripture that we're to be gospel witnesses to those around us. This is our calling. And friend, what should be our motivation? We can look at the world and be motivated for a time by the needs of the world around us. But I think the greatest motivation is not the needs of people, but the glory of God. He is worthy. He is worthy. And if no one hears and no one repents and no one responds, he is still worthy to be praised and proclaimed in a dark world. And this is our calling this morning. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? Father, we ask you that you would do a work in my heart this morning. Father, I know that my heart is stirred. That, Father, we would be a people who are witnessing starting gospel conversations, engaging people around the gospel, family, friends, even one another in this room. Holy Spirit of God, do a work in our hearts today. Father, thank you so much that we have the privilege of proclaiming Jesus. May we not shirk our responsibility. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask these things. Let's stand to our feet.